Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where each week we hear from farmer industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. This week I'm joined by Stephen Smith. Uh, Stephen is the senior program director over at Encoded Therapeutics uh, based out of San Francisco. Um, Stephen, um, you and I have spoken previously. Uh, welcome to the show. I've given you a short introduction there, but please, uh, I guess, give us an introduction in your own words, if you will. Yeah, nice to nice to to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, my name is Stephen Smith. I'm currently working for Encoded Therapeutics. Um, we're based in South San Francisco, so we have a great big hub here in the Bay Area of biotech and pharmaceuticals. Um, mm -hmm. First started, I think, with Genentech, and then the area has just grown. I believe there's hundreds of small companies and large companies that are based here. So very happy to be here. But you know, with COVID, have been working from home for the last uh, year plus, but uh, at ENCODED, um, I was hired to lead their flagship gene therapy program. And this is, a, this is an opportunity for me to come back to gene therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I've stepped away for a little bit, but um, it's great to be back. It's what I call, I think it's like the wild west um, when it comes to drug development. Gene therapy yeah. has is blazing its own path. So it's always a, every day is an interesting day working working at ENCODED. Um, mm -hmm. Prior to that, I was, uh, I've worked in oncology, I've worked in virology, um, I've worked in movement disorders. Um, so I've had a pretty wide range, ranging career of different sort of disease areas and mm -hmm. indications that I've worked in. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I guess interesting that, yeah, you've, you've got a bit of a, a mixture there in terms of therapeutic areas that you've covered. Uh, now, gene therapy, is it, um, and it's an interesting one that, uh, to, that hopefully you, you settle on. Um, but look, in terms of how you first even got into the world of, of clinical trials, because, you know, I speak to so many people, it's clinical research is a massive area. Uh, and I think up until, you know, coronavirus hit, there were so many people that just didn't really understand what went on behind the scenes, who the personalities were, and just maybe looked at pharma companies as these big drug development giants who yeah. were making tons of money but uh that's not always the case so look did you always want to, to go go down this route i know that you started out as a, as a cra uh when you first got into the industry but was was that the plan coming out of high school and college and, and things how did, how did you oh. <laughs> no not at all i think um i've been in the industry pharmaceutical biotech for over 25 years at this mm. point. And I just happened to, the funny thing is I fell into this industry. Mm. Um, I don't have a science background. Um, and my intention coming out of university really was to go into foreign service. Um, I, I had studied sort of international relations and, and yeah. really was thinking my career was gonna take me in that direction. Mm. My very first job um, sort of coming out of university really was with a pharmaceutical company. And I was a, an entry level CRA at that point where I had no background. I had to learn very quickly on the job. I think what, what got me that first role and I'm very appreciative for the, my first boss and, and folks is that they were really looking for specific sort of soft skills, not necessarily experience. Um, at that time, there wasn't really a lot of training available for folks to become CRAs, to go into clinical trials. Um, yeah. Certificate programs were just starting. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn on the job of you know, what it was, what a clinical trial was. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, while I was doing that job, I did enroll in a certificate program in order to understand the regulatory environment, clinical study designing, mm -hmm. um, what it took to execute, what was biostatistics, um, really getting the foundation, both learning again on the job and then through this sort of formal certificate, you know, through a school. Yeah. And it was through that that I became a CRA and then slowly started moving up the ranks of, you know, first starting as supporting in clinical trials and then eventually starting to run my own clinical trials. Mm. So, and from CRA guys, um, Stephen, because a lot of our audience are, you know, CRAs, aspiring CRAs. And I get asked the question over and over of how do I break into the world of clinical research and clinical trials yeah. without experience? And um, so you mentioned soft skills. Uh, there was perhaps what you, you got it, uh, how you got in. What would yeah. you, uh, I guess, perhaps define as maybe the, the, the standout soft skills that, you know, if people have got them and, and they need to be emphasizing them, um, what, would you, what would you say that are perhaps the main ones that, that you possessed at that time? I think an, an understanding of, of relationships between things, um, especially in clinical trials, you're generating data in order to support a hypothesis, right? You're, you're executing a trial to... Um, develop a drug, you're trying to understand whether it works, um, if it's safe. Mm -hmm. I think I was able to demonstrate that I could think logically and understand how to unpack certain complex ideas. Yeah. Um, the other soft skill I think it's necessary, especially for entry-level CRAs, is being able to influence um, when you don't have direct authority. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, if you're Working internally, you're taking direction from a study lead, um, but you need to understand why you're getting those and ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. um, if you are going out into the field, if you are monitoring at a site, well, some companies still have their own monitors that go out, um, you're working with the site staff and, and you have to learn how to speak with them, uh, influence them. If there's something that isn't compliant with what you're expecting, that you talk through it and be able to explain why you're asking these questions and uh, mm -hmm. and and really kind of be able to be comfortable with the experts because the the PIs and the site staff know the patients they're gathering the data but you also need to be able to present your position and understand why they did what they did mm -hmm. and be able to maybe influence to to correct something or or you know adjust something um, because it didn't quite comply. So having that ability to be comfortable and negotiate, I think is really important. Yeah, and I, 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 I guess hear that a lot. And I think that one of the big things in that position, as you say, because you're often speaking to, uh, I guess, people that are leading in the trials, the PIs, is being able to approach it in an empathetic way so yes. that, you know, you're getting, um, I guess, buy-in from all of the parties that you're, you're dealing with. Uh, and it just makes it's yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of that public relations side of things, perhaps which you know you had that allowed you to to be good at that back uh, when you were um, in that particular role, I guess. Yeah. When I have um, I have folks come to me nowadays. There's there's master's degrees in project management. There's mm -hmm. really you know comprehensive programs in clinical trials that that are all over the United States. Um, so there is an opportunity to sort of get the educational background to be able to target if this is the field you want to go in. Mm -hmm. And I think 
having some very good examples of how you've demonstrated some of these soft skills um, during the interview process would be helpful. Um, you know, if you come, if you're going into an, uh, an entry level position, um, oftentimes you won't have the direct experience. Um, so you can't, you can't necessarily leverage that, yeah. but you can leverage examples of these particular soft skills that they're looking for that perhaps are even listed in the job descriptions. Definitely. Look, I, I think that's highly valuable advice for, I guess, anyone out there that is looking to break into, uh, you know, a CRO or uh, sorry, a CRA or CRC based position. So look, certainly appreciate your insight um, in that. And look, from there, I know that you then kind of started to progress through through the ranks. So talk us through that, because I know that there was also a bit of a sabbatical that you've had between getting from that point to uh, where you are now with, with Encoded. So just talk us through how your career developed um, after your CRA uh, days. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy to talk about my, my path. I think it, it sounds a little unusual when I speak to other folks. And I've, you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying I'm very privileged and blessed to have, the, have had the career that I've had. Mm. Um, I've had the opportunities to, when I've made these changes, to really be particular and selective on where I wanted to go next. And unlike other folks who perhaps are motivated by title changes or wanting to advance um, within a company to accumulate more authority or power, yeah. um, I've been driven by the idea of what's next, what, what gaps am I missing that I want to fill and where can I find those, those opportunities? So um, I started off as an entry-level CRA, managing clinical trials, managing sort of investigator-initiated programs as well, uh, compassionate use. Um, so a lot of different kinds of things at the, at the very beginning. Yeah. And as I grew, I knew I wanted to, to take on more responsibilities and understand clinical trials themselves, designing studies, working with investigators to do that, um, really coming to a place where I understood the science. Um, but also understood the business and understood why we were doing what we were doing uh, within the company. Yeah. Um, with that, I ended up uh, pursuing a, a master's degree, a, an MBA, um, mm -hmm. in order to really fill in that gap for uh, understanding the corporate environment, you know, and how clinical trials and drug development fit within a pharmaceutical's corporate structure yeah. and corporate objectives. Um, I kind of moved up and started to do a little bit of uh, that work and, and got the MBA. Um, and then had the opportunity to work in, work in the UK. Um, so working abroad, um, mm -hmm. I worked for Gilead Sciences in their international office, and that was incredible experience. Um, what, what sort of year was, what sort of year was this? And where, where was the, the UK office based at that time? Yeah, so it's in Stockley Park, just outside of London. Uh -huh. um, so I, had to take the train out every day and, and go to Stockley Park and, and work there. And, and it, the international office at that time was really focused on everything sort of, I would say, ex-US. So mm -hmm. the, the, the big markets in Europe, um, the, the smaller markets um, around the world. Um, so it was focused on everything outside of the US. And yeah. what that experience taught me was oftentimes, if you work for an American pharmaceutical or biotech company, a lot of the strategy is very US centric. Um, the development plans are, are generally focused on, you know, working 
to approve a drug in the US, working with FDA. And so it's very American sort of focused. Yeah. And working in Europe taught me that, you know, working in Europe is infinitely more complex. It's not a United States of Europe. It's it's really separate companies. And mm. while there's opportunities to streamline things, these are different national entities. Yeah. And they come with their own set of complexities. And so being able to work abroad taught me that, you know, there's a broader strategy that one has to adopt beyond just the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was in that Europe, have, I guess, taught you quite a lot, I guess, both personally and professionally. I know for, for us as a business, we, we've recruited all around the world. And I guess the cultures that we get in Southeast Asia are different to, to that in South Asia, to, to Europe, to the Middle East. To the, to the states it's all very different so that must have been a, a bit of an eye-opener for yourself at that time yes absolutely I think w- one of the things that I learned was uh, it's you know when the head office in the U.S. Um, sends an American over to Europe to help get the Europeans organized um, sometimes that's not uh, necessarily accepted as <laughs> the way it was presented <laughs> And, um, and, and really, I think this goes back to the soft skills is, mm. you know, you can be a highly efficient and effective um, employee or worker in a company in your head office in the US because yeah. you, under, you understand the culture, you understand the, the, the environment that you're in. And when you're picked up and, and put into a different situation, you have to, you have to leverage your soft skills. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I spent quite a bit of time, you know, really building relationships and trust with each of the individual, you know, country heads and, and medical people yeah. and took the time to do that rather than coming in and uh, sort of implementing lots of things that, that I learned are best practices at headquarters in the U.S., but don't necessarily is not the right fit for a complex situation outside of the US. Mm-hmm. So again, relying on sort of the soft skills of, you know, really trying to negotiate, um, be able to influence without direct authority or power. Yeah. Um, and those things. So. Well, it sounds like that was, um, I, I guess, yeah, as, as I say, a bit of an eye opener, a bit of a, probably learn about yourself at that time. From there, I believe it was, was it at that point um, that you then took a sabbatical, you went went traveling, if, if I recall, from sort of our previous conversations, um, which took you even further um, from the States. Um, look, for, for the audience uh, listening in, if you can elaborate on that, how, how did that come about? Yeah, so I was uh, being in, in London and surrounded by amazing art, Um, I decided that it was sort of time to take a break from my career. I'd been working consistently for, for over a decade at that point. Mm. And, um, you know, really wanted the opportunity to sort of maybe supercharge the other side of my brain, you know, being embedded in sort of the scientific world, really wrestling with scientific questions and medical questions with our programs, um, understanding, you know, patient perspectives. Um, I felt that I wanted to sort of leave that for a little bit and be able to explore, you know, more creative side. Um, Not not that I'm an artist or or anything, but um, so while in London, I decided to leave uh, Gilead and pursue a second master's degree in East Asian art and be really in, in in the 
the depths of the art world in, in Europe, which was just absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And through that, I was able to uh, also work in Asia. So we, we moved Amazing. to Shanghai and I was sort of involved in the art world in, in Shanghai. Yeah. Um, part of the drive there was understanding as China was emerging um, as, a, as a sort of a global economic superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just had, was a, a booming art market. I wanted to understand how art was being produced, how it was being sold um, in Asia. So I worked in Asia for a while um, and then realized that, you know, I needed to come back to a career that um, I had already started. Mm-hmm. Um, so this sabbatical ended when I came back to the US and began working at Genentech and then went back into um, study management. Yeah. And then shortly after that, took the leap into project program management. So I highly encourage anybody who can do it, if you're in your career, if you feel like um, you're able to take a personal sabbatical, this gives you an opportunity to really exercise another part of your brain. And to be honest, when I came back to my career in drug development, um, I really had a different perspective. I was able to perhaps um, see the forest for the trees, you know, Mm -hmm. take a step back, um, think a little bit more strategically, focus on individuals and understanding what what influenced and drove uh, the people around me. So it gave me a really different perspective than kind of churning through my day-to-day career without a break. Um, So like I said, I've been very privileged to have been able to do that. So do you feel that that gave you, I guess, a better work-life balance? So, you know, Stephen pre-sabbatical was just head down, work, 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 work. You then had your sabbatical, followed your passion a little bit and came back almost a a bit of a changed man with a a better balance, uh, effectively. Yeah, I think early in my career, and I don't know if many of your listeners might feel this, you know, you are really kickstarting your what will hopefully be a fulfilling career and it's an important decision you know what direction you go in um you know your your job um in some instances when you're younger kind of defines who you are it plays a large role in your identity you know i work for so and so this is my job it's you know if you're at a cocktail party oftentimes the second or third question is what do you do for work you know so it's a big part of your identity um, and, and I got wrapped up in that, I think, early in my career. I wanted to be with great companies that were doing great things for patients, you know, making great drugs that, that help people. Um, having a sabbatical allowed me to realize that there's more than that, that who I was, um, yeah. you know, is not purely defined by what I did for work, but is, is a part of me. And, sure. um, and I don't think I'd be able to have that perspective if I, if I, didn't allow myself to step away from it for a while and come back in. Sure. Um, so I am very appreciative of, of that. Well, that perhaps explains, I think when, when I first reached out to you about potentially being a guest uh, on the, this podcast series, it, I think it was your LinkedIn profile that kind of piqued my interest. And, you know, on there, I think it was, you know, I have a farmer exec or, or a drug developer for work, um, art appreciator for passion, uh, and then super dad um, for life, I think it was. Um, so I just thought that this is, it's a, a unique profile. Uh, so I, that was, you know, brought my intrigue. Um, and I guess that's what you're summarizing here. So um, yeah, I, I think if people are able to take that back and, and actually almost 
sometimes it doesn't necessarily need to be a sabbatical, but just almost maybe a step back to, to look at what is really important to them in life in, in general. And if it's yeah. just your, 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 your job is your identity, then maybe, you know, try to rethink that and, and think, is that actually what you want to be identified as, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that one of the things that was really helpful in my career is if I could think, you know, what do I want to be doing five years from now? Mm. Um, you know, not just, you know, what am I going to do in the next six months, but really have sort of a longer term plan. Uh, five years from now, I would like to be doing this kind of work. Um, so then I can back end and, and understand what do I need to do to get to that space? So a, a couple of my thoughts um, over the last years were, you know, uh, I, I felt pretty good about my experience in, in clinical trials and being a, you know, a clinical lead and, and designing studies and leading studies. And then I thought, well, I'd like to, I'd like to understand the bigger picture in a yeah. company, you know, what is the life cycle of this drug, you know, playing being a part of clinical was one portion of a larger life cycle strategy, you know, that included uh, commercial aspects, um, that included regulatory aspects. Um, and I wanted to really be a part of that bigger picture. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I sort of looked for opportunities to move into project program management and did that um, as encompass well. It, encompass it all uh, effectively. That's right. And so moving towards running core teams or whatever you call them, project teams, um, asset teams, uh, teams that encompass, you know, everything from supply chain representatives to manufacturing to regulatory and really leading the, the overall strategy for, for the drug through, you know, preclinical, through clinical development and then beyond to, you know, commercialization. Yeah. So I made that move. And other aspects that I was interested in and was able to fill with roles was, you know, now that I understood, you know, what within the company would be good for an asset and how to deliver on those, um, I wanted to build up my experience in alliance management mm -hmm. uh, and business development, um, especially in oncology. So much of oncology is combination therapy, um, especially as we get into more personalized medicine. Yeah. Um, so having some experience and skills in working between companies and working in partnerships or alliances um, with another pharma company is always very interesting and a, and a great experience and a great set of um, skills to develop when you're trying to fit perhaps a, a, a high risk tolerance biotech company. Um, that's small and based in, in San Francisco with a, you know, a giant pharmaceutical company that mm. perhaps is, you know, a European or, or Japanese yeah. big company that's around and trying to get these two entities to collaborate and have a single purpose for drug development and combination or, or whatever, or, or, you know, a partnership for a single drug, um, it's, it's, it's interesting and it really, you know, pushes the boundaries on how to be able to negotiate and influence without power when you're just a partner and not necessarily the, the driver. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to do that as well as some business development of identifying who to even partner with and, you know, nice creating value propositions. And so, um, so like I said, I think one piece of advice is always think ahead, you know, what do I want to do five years from now? And oftentimes recruiters and headhunters 
are a great resource to be able to sort of talk to about, you know, when, you, when they contact you and say, hey, I've got these positions open, and you can call back and say, you know, these aren't the right positions for me, but what I am looking for is this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to be doing this kind of work in a few years. And if you have positions within that space, you know, please contact me. And, and that's how I've been able to find a couple of roles is by being very clear on what my hopes were um, for the next step. I think your mentality is that is, is spot on. I actually did a poll the other day via LinkedIn, which was, you know, how people actually view the role of a recruiter. Is it finding people for, for jobs or is it finding jobs for people? Um, mm-hmm. Now, I guess it depends on, on who you speak to, but ultimately, if you speak to enough job seekers and find out, as you said, if you get very clear and specific with them what they're looking for, eventually you will be incredible at finding people for jobs because someone will give you a brief and you will say, pluck it from the, the memory archive somewhere and be like, oh, Stephen Smith, he, I know that he, he was talking about exactly this sort of thing right. about six months ago. Let me reach out to him and, and see if he, he would be interested. And that's, I guess, how I've made a name for myself over the years. I've, my, my phone book is just crazy. You know, there's pe- people that I've been in touch with some of them for five years, you know, I've never had an opportunity for them, but they keep in touch with me. They send me holiday pics sometimes just because we check in every now and then. Uh, and I've actually met some um, of, of the guys in, you know, in my network of, on vacation just because we've stayed in touch. And I think that's how you certainly job seekers should be utilizing recruiters is as a, it's a free resource for, for job seekers to effectively pin down your, your uh, the ideal job for yourself and then just sit back and wait and let the, the recruiters effectively do the work and searching for you. That's right. That's right. And that's been the most successful partnerships is, you know, really um, being able to leverage that as a resource, having that um, relationship, um, mm-hmm. you know, as you move on later in your career, I think a lot of um, your listeners will experience that, you know, to, to when you're building a team, especially for a startup, um, mm-hmm. you know, people come in one of two ways. One is they have worked with somebody in the past, and so they're being referred directly because they have the experience. They know this person's a good person, so we're going to invite them in to, to mm-hmm. come in and meet the team and perhaps even join. Um, the other is to have a trusted um, sort of recruiter that has a stable of candidates who perhaps aren't looking for a change at the moment, but when presented with a new opportunity that fits everything that they're looking for for their next step, um, that's already that's you know that's already ten steps ahead than simply you know looking for a bunch of folks to fill a role. Um, having it's, that, it's that not impossible to do that. If if I had to rely on, I mean, we don't really advertise um, you know a, a specific job hoping to get someone through to it because we'll probably get hundreds of applicants and very few are actually uh, suitable for it. And it's almost a time creation. You have to be proactive and work in the reverse way of finding jobs for people, but that may be six months down the line, 12 months down the line. You do it for long enough and eventually you've got such a network where it seems instantaneous to perhaps your clients, but it's not. It's, you know, that's something you done ages ago. Um, And yeah, I mean, for me, part of our business is focused on engineering. I still get requests for engineers to go to, I don't know, like (laughs) the most recent one was the Philippines. And I said, I know a guy and within 10 minutes I'd contacted him and said 
and set up. So they're they're now in talks, and I'm hopeful hopeful that it'll go through. But yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. But in terms of Let's come on to a snapshot of, of how things are going um, at the moment. In terms of encoded, I know that your CEO was recently named uh, San Francisco's business at uh, top 40 under 40. That's you right. guys are not a huge organization, but I've seen a, quite a bit about you in the press. You, yourself, you joined um, not so long ago, but we've had coronavirus. So talk to me about how how it's been since you've joined, how it's going, and the, I guess the impacts of the virus and, and things. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I started this job um, almost a year ago. I think I'm coming up to month 11. Um, so it, it, I interviewed. Um, so th in this situation, I was actually brought in um, because I worked with several folks that have joined Encoded. Yeah. And um, they were folks that I've stayed in contact with. They were part of my network, were friends. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, reaching out and, and talking um, to them, they, they said, there's an opportunity here. We'd very much, you know, think it'd be great for you to join us. And of course, I, I know the people and really wanted to work with the, the folks again. Yeah. Um, came in and, and, and when I say came in for an interview, it was all virtual, all Zoom. Um, so uh, everybody was working from home at that point. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody was, I think maybe the scientists were going in to the, to the, the site because of the equipment and the need you know, to be on site. Um, but- Because uh, this time last year, yeah, we were kind of height of lockdown and restrictions, certainly here in the right. UK, so. Same in the U.S. Yeah, restaurants were shutting down, uh, closed, and and businesses were for you know asking their folks to work from home. Yeah, and so all more of the office-based folks were at home, and and as I interviewed, it was all over Zoom. So you know, have not met my colleagues um, that I work with, you know, for the past year in person. Um, I did go into the office once. Um, we were celebrating uh, Purple Day, which is um, uh, an awareness for epilepsy and um, the drug that we're developing um, is targeting a certain form of epilepsy. And so um, there was awareness for this syndrome called Dravet syndrome and where we had to wear purple and, and bring awareness on social yes. media. And it was the first time we went into actually on site and met some of my direct um, colleagues and we had some pictures taken and that was the first time so it's very odd <laughs> it's very strange how um, how long what what so how long had you been in the role at that point oh uh, it was probably nine months nine um months. so it was just a little while ago that was the first um, interaction yeah I, I guess real face to face not zoom face to face because they're, they're, they're right. you know there's a difference isn't there so um right. that must have felt good in in that case yeah, it was great. And we're, we're now looking forward to, to getting back. We actually just started conversations about, um, I think a lot of our folks are fully vaccinated and we're, mm -hmm. we're thinking of at least getting together for a couple of offsites um, to, to do some team teamwork. Nice. Um, and so I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, I don't think we're going to go back full time. I don't think most companies are, are, are pushing that yet. We're going to see how the next several months go. Um, but I think a lot of us, you know, are eager to go in at least a couple of days a week, rather, you know, not necessarily five days, full days, but, um, maybe some, um, uh, half, you know, half days or a couple of days during the week. Yeah, just a hybrid, kind of, hybrid model. So I guess yeah. we'll just ease people, people back. Well, I mean, what are the, in terms of the state, uh, restrictions for you guys at the moment, is it, is there, 
is it enforced? Are they encouraging people to, to go back to offices? I know in, in the UK, they're in, like, from Monday, um, they will be encouraging people to return to the office. Um, so I guess there's a lot of companies weighing up whether it's, you know, people should be back or, or, or not. What's the general consensus for you guys as a state uh, over in California? I think they're leaving it up to companies to determine um, what is needed. Um, I've heard there's a few tech companies that feel very strongly about getting their folks back in because a lot of they feel a lot of the creativity happens when folks are physically together mm -hmm. and can bounce ideas off of each other. Um, other companies are less so eager to get folks back in because they've seen, you know, at least a year's worth of um, evidence that people can work virtually, be very productive in doing yeah. that, you know, without physically having to be together. I've also just talked to a lot of folks in industry. Like I said, in South San Francisco, um, it's a hub for biotech and pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of small companies that are in shared spaces. They don't have a dedicated building. And so yeah. I'm thinking about, well, how are we going to work in that kind of situation if some companies are have a different policy and, mm. you know, for safety, you know, levels. And But what's interesting too, I think some companies, folks that I've talked to is over the past year, um, companies have also been hiring new folks. And it's forced companies to think about um, do we want folks to relocate if we hire them? Could they work remotely? If, if the yeah. right candidate came along, um, do we need them to be in the Bay Area? Or could they just you know, fly in every once in a while and be a part of things, but mm. really engage through you know, Zoom and other formats? So it's, I think, forced companies to think about you know, do we want to co-locate everybody in these centers? Yeah. Also, hiring new folks means that perhaps a couple of these small companies have actually outgrown their physical space over the last year. Yeah. So where will you put all these new people if they don't have a dedicated desk or space, you know? So mm -hmm. it's kind of thrown things into the air of what are our options and can we think more creatively rather than going back to the sort of the nine to five, everybody have their own dedicated space and everybody must be in the office together all the time. Um, I think uh, corporate leaders are, are really evaluating what is best for my company and what are best for my people. So I think there's going to be a variety of responses about going back to the office. Yeah, definitely. And where's, I mean, where's you, uh, I guess your stand on it. It seems as though you're kind of a, and on the fence um, at, the, at the moment in, kind, in terms of a couple of days in and just having that flexibility. Yeah, I think my position is uh, I, I would rather go in for team meetings. I think it's important, you know, if we can get folks together. Um, I think it's less important for me to be either sitting at my desk at home or sitting at my desk there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, oftentimes we've, we've gone into a pattern if I need something urgent in an in a office environment, I'd get up and go to that person's office and we'd sit down or they'd come to my office and we'd sit down and have a chat. Um, you know, we've gotten to a place now where it sounds strange, but I actually call people on their phones. I, I don't wait for a meeting. I don't, I, don't yeah. I don't chat with them. If I need something right away, I call. And it's been a little bit of a reversal. I think we've gotten into a, a place where nobody wanted to call anybody anymore. Everybody just wanted to send chats and wait for a response. Mm. Um, COVID has forced me to start calling people because then we can have a longer 
conversation. So whether it's going to another person's office or asking them to come to mine or just calling, I think it serves that purpose. But I would like to go in just for team meetings. I think just having you know, the opportunity to read body language, to, to really kind of draw out people's perspectives and ideas if, if they're on the quieter side. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to see that is, is, is easier for me than trying to look on Zoom or, or other, you know, sort of platforms. Yeah. Um, you know, you get a lot more sort of awkward silences, I think, on, <laughs> on Zoom than you do in a room where you can see somebody you know, maybe have an idea is hesitant to bring it forward, but you can sort of draw it out of them uh, than it is. The energy, the body language, there's a lot more forms of communication than just the visual and and the audio, isn't there, when you're in a room, I I think. Um, So it's good to hear your perspective on that and and I guess your preferences. But in terms of, I guess, general plans for the future for both encoded and for, I guess, Pharma and you know the, the, the Bay Area biotechs um, moving forward as, as the year goes ahead. You know what sort of have you got any predictions, thoughts of, of how things are going to look in you know six months, twelve months? Yeah, I think our industry is going to continue to advance. Um, you know, COVID really didn't didn't slow the work down. A lot of you know drug development is a multi year project. Um, it, it once you start a program and things are going well, um, you know it's going to keep going, right? So I think my predictions are investments will continue to be made, um, companies will continue to be formed, um, uh, pipelines will continue to advance, and um, we'll continue actually with the struggle of of trying to find the right people for to fill these roles, um, you know. I think uh, just in conversations with a couple of colleagues in different companies, everybody's looking, you know, there's the demand for folks in our industry is high in the Bay Area and on the East Coast of the United States. Candidate market at the moment. It's, you know, they're they're driving uh, how things are going and and salaries are going up because of that, because it can be done like this. That's right. That's right. You know, the guys now can, can interview three or four times back to back in the same day from the comfort of their sofas. Um, okay. So that gives them a massive amount of power and, and the hiring landscape has just changed immensely. That's absolutely right. And uh, I think everybody is struggling. It's a, it's a very limited talent pool at the moment and the opportunities for, to fill those roles are, are great. I think that's going to continue. I, I, I don't see a huge bolus of, of new, new workers coming in. I think we're going to, sort of adopt a strategy of relying on our own networks, relying on really good recruiters to identify great folks that will fit. Mm. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity for people who want to come into this industry, who are you know looking for entry-level positions to really think about this sector, think about biotech and, and pharmaceuticals. And, and like me, maybe for folks who don't have a science background, this is still an opportunity. Um, I think you can learn on the job. Um, I think if you have a science background, even better, right? If you have the subject matter expertise, that's awesome. But if you can leverage your, your soft skills and your experience to, to be able to come into this space. Um, so my prediction is we're gonna continue to struggle to find great people. And if we can encourage more folks coming out of 
um, project management degrees, um, scientific degrees to consider going into pharma biotech rather than you know go assuming to go into to research. Um, that would be great for the industry and be great for patients if we can, you know, really pull through a lot of the drugs that we're hoping to to develop, especially in the gene therapy space and working in sort of the rare disease areas. Yeah, well, I I I, I have to mirror everything you're saying there. Yes. It's going to be tough and challenging to identify top talent. To be fair, it, it always has done, and that's why you know recruitment agencies like ourselves exist. Um, but also, it's exciting times. There probably is going to be more collaboration. You know, it's going to, the market is going to continue to grow, and ultimately, all of the innovation and everything else that is going on is going to bring better outcomes for patients. So, you know, that's. The, the main driver for I think everyone that's involved with the industry. So um, look, it's definitely exciting times. And look, outside of, of the world of, of pharma, um, I, I, you know, restrictions are, are easing here in London. It sounds like they are also for yourself over in the Bay Area. Um, what are you looking forward to, I guess, personally? Is there anything that you've missed immensely um, over the past year that you like, oh, I just can't wait to get back to <laughs> that go again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I keep thinking about museums, um, you know, and just the amazing stuff that was uh, sort of coming that was on pause. Um, yeah. I miss going to theater. Um, this is why I loved London so much. You could you could go into any you can go to any. any that's right. And I and go to theater. You could go to my, one of my favorite things to do was we went to theater all the time and I've seen some really god awful productions in London, you know, um, just because it was, I was, I was accessible, but, you know, seeing the good, the bad. Um, so kind of getting back into, to seeing shows and plays and stuff here in the Bay area, because we have yeah. a great, we have a great art culture and really, um, I, I've been training also on the side to be a, a docent at the Asian art museum here in San Francisco for the school programs. All right. Um, to try to bring students into the Asian Art Museum to get exposure into different cultures in, mm -hmm. in Asia. And, um, and that stopped because school, you know, there was no school, there's no in-person school, there's certainly no yeah. field trips for schools. And so one of my hopes is that as we move back to getting back to normal with, with schools mm. is to start bringing kids through the museum and introducing them to all the amazing visual art and history and culture nice. that that museum has to offer so um happy to take you through too if you ever visit san francisco i'd love to take your family around and take you through the museum we love it we love a tour if we're, if we're going anywhere we like the service of these things so yeah we'd, we'd be taking you up on that <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, but look, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story. Um, look, I'll be excited to hear, you know, what's what's next for you guys at Encoded and, and see how things progress. Sounds Absolutely. like you're doing some great work over there. Uh, and look, if, if, if there's anyone that wants to reach out to yourself on the professional um, side of things, what's the best way to get hold of you? Is it kind of through the website, is email or, or LinkedIn? What's what's the best platform for you? Yeah, Steve? very happy for folks to contact me, um, you know, at, if, if they want to have a chat about careers or uh, the industry, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps I can, I'll send you the, the link for that. And then, um, you know, they can send me a personal email. My, my personal email is smith, period, mm -hmm. Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Uh -huh. period roy roy at gmail.com 
So happy for, for folks to send me uh, email through that as well. And take Perfect. It well, look, thanks ever so much for coming on the, sh on the show once again. Uh, you have a great day over at your end. And um, look, we'll keep in touch most definitely. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good man. Thank <laughs> you.